millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to this week's Government vs. the Robots. It's a very exciting week here at Government vs. the Robots because we have our first right honourable guest. Uh, Jackie Smith was the first female Home Secretary and she's since been a regular reviewer of the nation's newspapers with Ian Dale on Sky News and has recently joined the illustrious ranks of podcast presenters. Uh, Jackie, thanks very much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And how are you finding your foray into podcasting? I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I mean, we, uh, of course, Ian and I, uh, we weren't fired from Sky Papers, but we, uh, they started to make our appearances less frequent. So in the end, we decided, no, we'd had enough of that um, our old media. And uh, we would, uh, but we couldn't resist carrying on giving our opinions on things, which is why we decided to do the For The Many podcast, which incidentally was top of new and notable at one point, I can say. Oh, an honour we both share, one of, one of the only ones. <laughs> One I possess actually um, I, uh, I'm really excited to talk to you because one of the things we've done a lot of our episodes is look at specific technologies and think about how they're likely to impact society and therefore politics but we're making some assumptions because we haven't asked anybody about what the capacity of government actually is to do anything about uh, the kind of f- very fast pace of change mm-hmm. with technology at the moment but before we get into that I just kind of want to ask some general political questions um, mm-hmm. and to ask first off I was pondering the title right honourable on my way here uh, and I wondered what your what your oldest friends had to say when you became a right honourable. Well, I actually became right honourable before I went into the cabinet because usually usually that joining the Privy Council is something that happens uh, when you're a cabinet minister. But I think possibly because Tony hadn't given me the job I wanted <laughs> in government as a sort of sop, I got to be a um, a member of the Privy Council. And um, well, my mum and dad were proud. I was very proud, so proud that I got carried away and. Um, uh, kissed the Queen's hand so enthusiastically that a big smacker sound went round uh, the room. But to be honest with you, it doesn't. Um, uh, it didn't take up a lot of time at the time. Although it is ministers that attend the, the Privy Council, and of course, when, once you're not a minister anymore, you don't go at all until the Accession Council. When, of course, you know, if if and when Her Majesty dies, there will be an Accession Council, and uh, then the Privy Council are called together for that. And you, it's been a while since you were a Member of Parliament, but what is the best thing about being a former Member of Parliament or former Secretary of State? <laughs> um, the best thing is, uh, frankly, for me, not being in opposition because I was elected in 1997. I uh, uh, stayed in Parliament until 2010 when I lost my seat. I always knew I was not going to be in opposition and I think it would be pretty grim, actually, for a variety of reasons, some simply to do with no longer having your hands on the levers of power and some having to do with the way the way the Labour Party is uh, at the moment, so I'm glad I haven't had to go through uh, haven't had to go through that. I think it's interesting. I was talking to somebody just the other day about former politicians and whether or not people should bother to listen to them. And funny enough, my answer was yes, they should. And part as partly because actually you feel, particularly if you've been a minister, you feel an enormous liberation being 
out of Parliament and out of ministerial life. That's not to say that I don't, you know, there are of course times when I think if I could be a minister again, I would love to do that. Um, because being able to really influence issues and change things is, you know, I mean, that's frankly, that's what you come into politics to do in the first place. So that is great. But I think it also depends on how you deal with no longer being in Parliament. You know, some of my colleagues started trying to get back straight away. And I didn't. I made a decision once I was out that that was it. I didn't want to go back. And I've been able to to do a whole range of other things, you know, not just the podcast, but other things um, since 2010. And I think that that's very important for your sort of mental place, because it's quite difficult to settle in life outside Parliament if you keep thinking you're going to go back. And also, of course, it means you have to be careful about what you say, because at some point or another in the future, you're going to be held to account for it. And I, I think it's easy for people who haven't worked in politics to make assumptions about the capacity of politicians to change things. And I'm conscious that you have spent time in kind of you, you, you climbed the ladder in a fairly typical way by going from being a backbencher to uh, I, I don't know if you were a PPS at some point, but then I was on a select committee. OK, yeah, Treasury and then, select committee. Uh, you know, through the ranks of minister to secretary of state. Can you give us a, an idea for people who don't haven't seen the inside workings of Westminster? In those different positions, so when you're an MP, what do you have the capacity to change? What do you wish you could do that you can't? And then how does that change as you get further up the ranks of government? I was um, very lucky in that uh, I spent two years on the backbenches after 1997 before I became a minister. Uh, During that time, I joined the Treasury Select Committee and I had a baby, so I had plenty to keep me um, uh, occupied. The truth is, as a backbench MP, actually in terms of what you can achieve, it's pretty small. You have to make to decide whether or not you want to be a campaigning MP. So there are certainly MPs like Stella Creasy or somebody like that who who has achieved change uh, as a backbench, as an opposition uh, MP. But it's largely through pressure and campaigning. You don't actually have any levers of power. You are scrutinising legislation, you're raising issues, you're hopefully contributing to your party's policy, but that's it. So if you really want to get your hands on the levers of power, you need to uh, get ministerial office. Having said that, of course, the first rung or the first couple of rungs of that ladder, um, firstly, you become a a parliamentary undersecretary of state, or I did the the lowest ladder, otherwise known as a puss. And I mean, to give you an idea about what, and and of course, once you're appointed, when you're appointed, you're all excited and proud and right, that's it, you know, I'm going to change the world. And then you realise, I mean, I was enormously lucky, but I was in the Department for Education with David Blunkett as the Secretary of State and Estelle Morris as my immediate um, superior as Minister of State. So it was where there was lots of action and it was enormously interesting. But as Parliamentary Undersecretary, you get the smaller areas of policy. Now, in one way, that means that you can have an influence. So I had responsibility for special educational needs, for example. I was able to take through legislation, make changes. But you also very quickly realise that you you are doing the things that are not important enough for those above you to do. So, you know, quite frequently an invitation to some conference or other would arrive on my desk and at the top it would say, the Secretary of State wonders if Estelle Morris would consider this. And then in Estelle Morris's handwriting, it says, could Jackie do this? So you know that you are, you know, doing the things that the more important people didn't want to do. Minister of State, which is the sort of next rung up, which I did uh, uh, from 2001 onwards, in some ways, and I've heard other people say this, it's one of the most interesting jobs in government because although you are not 
in the cabinet. You're not the secretary of state. You're not having to deal with everything in the department, but you have quite a lot of power and influence over the the area that you have responsibility for. So I was um, minister of state for schools, and I was minister of state for in the then Department of Trade and Industry and Equality. So I took through the civil partnership legislation and took quite a lot of the policy decisions on that. I did a lot of the policy work and then took through the legislation for the, what became the Education Act 2006. And you have a lot of ability to influence policy. You meet a lot of stakeholders. You really get into the detail of a policy area. Then, of course, when you become a Secretary of State, you are, of course, actually, then then you become joined back into the rest of government. Because the interesting thing is, when you're a minister, you become a little bit insulated, potentially, from the rest of government. Now you're in the cabinet, you're playing a role in setting the sort of general direction of the government. And of course, you're setting the priorities for your department as well. So it's a brilliant job, but you probably slightly move away from the real detail of policy work that you do as a minister of state. And when did you feel most sort of out of sync between people's perceptions of your power and ability to influence the world and what you were genuinely capable of doing, given given the levers you had your hands on? That's a good question. I think as a parliamentary undersecretary, and in fact, I feel, uh, I, I feel sympathetic to parliamentary undersecretaries now. So I think at that level, you're a minister and you think you should be really important and influential, but, but you ain't enough. I once held the belief that MPs could change everything. And now I sort of <laughs> sometimes wonder whether it's actually, you know, charity chief executives or people who are running really big businesses that are playing a role in people's day to day lives in in many respects, I guess, have more power or ability to shape people's lives than MPs. Is that a fair thing to think? I think I think if you are running a large business, I suspect you do. As you say, if you're running a large charity, you probably do. I work now in the NHS. I think, frankly, if you are the chief executive of a large and successful NHS trust, you probably have as much influence on uh, health policy that impacts on you as the Secretary of State does. And certainly you have a more immediate impact on your surroundings. To a certain extent, I think you're right. But in the end... All of those people need to turn to government for the legislative, the regulatory, the, the sort of strategic change that is necessary in order for them to be successful. That, so that's why, for all my frustrations and for all my not wanting to go back again, I still think, and I would still recommend anybody else who's interested in a political career, that this is the heart of uh, decision-making and serious change in our um, society, and we disrespect it and ignore it at our peril. And one of the other assumptions that people make about politicians is that it's all about the power. <laughs> uh, and, and and even when you do have some power, I think you know my, my sense is sometimes it's about glory as well as power. But all, people don't include, I guess, what must be the weight of responsibility that politicians must feel. We saw Lord Bates resign last night and unresign <laughs> before the end of the evening. But can you explain a little bit about sort of how you feel or how you've seen other political figures feel about the balance between the perceptions of power and actually the burden of responsibility? I think, particularly when I became Home Secretary, the given the responsibilities that you have in the Home Office, that weight of responsibility felt enormously heavy. You know, not debilitating, but it stays with you 
24 hours a day thinking about what you have responsibility for and what could happen on your watch. Um, but you also have a considerable amount of power. And I don't, you know, I'm not one of those who sort of backs off the idea that power is a bad thing. You know, I mean, I didn't, I did a lot of campaigning and demonstrating in my early days in the Labour Party during the 1980s, but I never changed much. It wasn't until I gained political power and uh, the ability to change things that I made the impact that I wanted to make. Now, the thing I would say about that power is it is very far from being untrammeled. You know, people probably think, well, you're the Home Secretary, why don't you make that happen? Well, in actual fact, of course, firstly, you are negotiating with your uh, cabinet colleagues, any change that you want to make. Uh, you are negotiating with the Treasury about the funding to do what it is you want to do. Um, you know, and as we see at the moment, those uh, that is not always a team that is necessarily working to the same objectives. Um, I mean, you know, I thought there were a few uh, rifts and division lines within the Labour government, but blimey, they're making us look like a united group at the moment. Um, So there's that negotiation to be done. You have lots of other interested parties who will be, you know, not, not preventing your power, but of course you have to win public support for what it is that you're trying to do and that requires potentially concessions and and changing and then you've got parliament and actually getting legislation through and I think probably parliament is more powerful now because of the nature of the government's majority and because of the way in which parliament has become more forceful in its particularly in its scrutiny uh, role even since I left in 2010. But nevertheless, if you're going to get a piece of legislation through Parliament, you are going to have to respond to challenges and opposition that comes from within Parliament. And thinking about Parliament um, and when you went in there, what was how was technology used in Parliament then, or was it used at all? <laughs> so when I arrived in uh, Parliament, we you didn't get you didn't have an office. Uh, you um, were put together in a big room uh, with lots of other newly elected uh, MPs. You shared uh, landline telephones. You didn't have any IT equipment. And it took a bit of time before you even had your own office and your computer. But in one way, of course, it wasn't half as significant as it is nowadays because the vast majority of your communication came by letter. Mm. Um, And then, of course, we had, and this still exists in Parliament now, uh, the TV with the what's called the annunciator so that you've got the business of the House of Commons. You can see who's speaking. uh, You can see what the business is. And then it ticks over and you see who the next speaker is. That's about... Oh, and sorry, and, and down the library corridor, there was a television which had CFAX on it and there was one of those you know in the well you you're too young Jonathan but in the good old days the the football results used to come through this sort of teleprinter thing and there was a teleprinter in the corridor or in the library corridor that used to sort of churn out a load of news on a bit of paper and today <laughs> whatsapp group messages make the front pages Indeed. of the newspapers <laughs> We had to, um, we couldn't set up a WhatsApp group if we wanted to, not that I wanted to plot against the government, but you couldn't set up a WhatsApp group. You had to sort of gather your mates together in some corner somewhere where, of course, the whips were much more likely to see you. Although you're right, of course, a WhatsApp group is not as confidential as it should have been if it's being leaked all over the place. I have a certain amount of wry 
consideration of the fact that, you know, WhatsApp and other communication companies have been so adamant about not allowing the government or the security agencies access to their, the ability to intercept their communication. And yet they, you know, and it's not the company's fault, politicians are perfectly happy to leak it right, left and centre. So it's obviously not as confidential as people thought it was. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you think about the role of government and technology, mm-hmm. so I, I remember there's an episode of The Thick of It yeah. where uh, they have the zeitgeist tapes. Yes. And I, <laughs> I wonder to what degree government today, is, is it fair of us to expect the kind of the creaking machine of government to keep up to speed with fake news and virtual reality and artificial intelligence? And you know, is, is government equipped to keep up to, up to speed with the pace of change? Uh, no, I don't think it is. Um, I think, and it was interesting, of course, if I think back to the Labour government, in very many of the ministerial roles that I was in, technology was seen as the sort of, in terms of policy, technology was seen as the signifier that you were new and modern. And so, uh, you know, as an education minister, we spent a lot of time thinking about how could you introduce technology into schools to assist learning. And I have to say, it had a considerable, you know, the investment had a considerable amount of success. I was a teacher before I went into Parliament. And the transformation of classrooms from the time that I left them to the end of the Labour government is just unbelievable. Now, some of that, I'm sure, would have happened without government investment. But some of it was really focused on and directed by government. Um, You know, as the Home Secretary, we talked about um, giving each police officer a handheld, some sort of handheld device. You know, the fact that we said some sort of handheld device probably answers your question. But on the whole... Just to be clear, not a truncheon. No! (laughs) (laughs) Taser. No, we gave them tasers as well, but that wasn't what I was talking about. Um, We... uh, But but you're absolutely right. Uh, And and actually, the, the same goes sometimes for broader scientific knowledge as well. But of course, there are, there is a government science scientific advisor, and there are departmental scientific advisors. And there wasn't in my day, a departmental 
technology advisor. Mm. And what that meant is that you were always making policy on the basis of not the latest information Mm. about technology. And I'm not one of those people who, you know, slags off the civil service because I think on the whole the British civil service is a major plus for our democracy and our government. But inevitably, if you are a civil servant, you won't also be the most up-to-date person in terms of the latest technology. And one of the problems that the civil service... I think it's trying to change, but certainly probably in my day did have, was a bit of an aversion to bringing in external expertise. And in something as fast-moving as technology, you're never going to be able to keep up unless you are able to bring in that external expertise. And on the whole, it didn't happen. And thinking about your time as Home Secretary, was there, you know, at that point, I mean, now there's a very clear relationship between technology and the role of Home Secretary and how do you kind of monitor that and potentially regulate mm, that mm. how to what degree had that emerged on the the tougher side of being home secretary yeah. when you were in the role it was just beginning to emerge so um on the one hand we had the issue of the extent to which the internet was being used for radicalization and what could we do about that on the other hand we had the beginning of the challenges around communications data that has led to the legislation that some, not me, choose to call the Snoopers Charter. So, um, you know, the first thing they do with you when you are Home Secretary is they explain to you the process of warranty that you need to do in order to, um, uh, in each and every case, uh, approve interception of communication. And um, so there is a high level of scrutiny uh, over any interception. And in those days, it was largely interception of telephone calls, um, the occasional interference with somebody's computer, but uh, essentially telephone calls. Very quickly, of course, what happened. and, And the telephone companies, because of the nature of the technology, were willing and able to keep the information, uh, the communications data that enabled the security agencies to say, um, to ask for information about who used a particular phone at a particular time, who who phone, who were they phoning. Not the content of that communication, because that had to be approved by a warrant, but at least the fact that it existed and who might be on either end, so that they could then decide what they wanted to intercept. The nature of new forms of communication means that that communication data doesn't need to be kept because it's a totally different business model. And actually, the companies have proved far less willing to engage with government on finding solutions than the more traditional telecom companies were in the past. And that's something that I actually feel uh, quite angry about, to be frank. And the failure of those companies to engage... You know, I I don't have any argument with the idea that there are some fundamental questions that people are quite right to ask about what it means to have that type of information about modern forms of communication. I, I, I wholly accept that. But the failure of those companies to be willing to engage with government and the, the sort of arrogance of some of the commentary. So, you know, this whole slightly 
mocking attitude to whether or not Amber Rudd is using the right expressions about technology, I find to be wholly distasteful, right? Amber Rudd's job is not to be the latest uh, technology nerd. It is to be thinking through the implications of keeping the British people safe. And frankly, she deserves a bit of help from others in doing that, rather than mockery about whether or not she is up with the zeitgeist and the technical language when it comes to technology. You, As you can see, I feel quite yeah, angry I can. about it. <laughs> you've, uh, and you've also answered my next question <laughs> for me, because uh, you know, I was going to ask, what is the, the challenge technology presents that you kind of least envy Amber Rudd yeah. for? Um, and it seems that taking on the, the might and the, the emerged and fast growing might of some yeah. of the big companies in this field sounds like you know, it sounds like that's the answer to that question. It is, that, that, is, uh, that is the answer. And the fact that this is not just a technological challenge, because I'm, you know, I'm of the view that if there is goodwill, you can find a way to both safeguard uh, our security and safeguard, quite rightly, people's liberties and privacies. Uh, to, to a considerable extent but there has to be the goodwill of people to engage in doing that and that's what I think has been missing. And I'm, I'm just thinking about whether you know in, in the home office right now, I don't expect you to know the answer, you're not in the home office anymore but you know, is there somebody who's sat there thinking about okay well what does virtual reality, our guest last week Marisol mm. she was saying you know before too long you couldn't fake news is just a thing on Twitter right now mm. before too long fake news will be something you actually watch or maybe you're even immersed in mm. um, and so is there likely to be people in government who are really wrestling with those questions? Because it feels to me like the answer is probably no, and yeah. I find that quite worrying. I think the answer is probably no. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting that somebody like uh, Nick Clegg, who is doing quite a lot of thinking about AI, machine learning, what does that mean for, you know, where are the opportunities? And also, what does it mean for sort of regulation and the relationship with uh, government? Now, that is thinking that is going on outside government. And I suspect, you know, Nick's been in government more recently than I have. I, I suspect that's partly because he knows it wasn't going on mm. in government. And you've been a newspaper reviewer, so you're a big <laughs> follower of news. Uh, <laughs> and a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, guest Jamie Bartlett talking about how Twitter and social media affect public discourse. Um, what's been your perception of how emerging technology has shaped the way that news kind of carries its way across the country these days? Well, I mean, this is a phenomenal change from the time that I um, went into Parliament in 1997, where, you know, you would, uh, you know, if you were really snappy, you would issue a press notice on the same day that something happened. And it might, you know, and if it was a national story, it might appear in the papers the next day. And if it was a local story, it would appear in that week's edition of the Redditch Advertiser or the Redditch Observer. Uh, I mean, that is wholly transformed now. So, um, you know, instant comment is expected, instant response uh, is expected, 24-hour news moves the cycle much more quickly. Um, and I think that has changed the nature of political debate and discussion. It's become, you know, actually it's become far more interactive, so it's far less about read my press notice and decide what you want to make of it and much more about a sort of engagement, which I think is really, really positive. What I think is less positive is that it probably brings a differentiation between what, what and how government ministers should 
and can respond and what the public and the politically interested public have begun to expect. So, you know, for me now, I expect, if I want to, to have a Twitter spat on the train on the way in, you know, and we, there can have been several iterations of what each of us think by the time I get off the train. Uh, Actually, I don't think that's particularly helpful for a government minister. And I think that's why, um, if you think about something like Twitter, although departments are on Twitter, I think it's quite difficult for ministers to engage with it. I'm probably sounding very old style in terms of my approach to ministers, because I think it's probably untenable for ministers to maintain that sort of barrier around them. But it's a big change. And it means what you get is much less of the disciplined government message and much more to a certain extent of what we've seen this week. You know, ministers, I mean, Brexit is a good example of where people are expressing their view very quickly and ministers, as we've seen this week, are criticising both their civil servants and the rest of government. And that is a big challenge for collective responsibility. It's a strange scenario where there's much more of a plurality of views from within the government and outside of the government, but actually there is a kind of, there's only one domineering context within which that plurality is taking place so you can have very different views about what should happen but it does kind of feel like everything is to some degree inevitable right now so <laughs> yes and one um one thing that people pay close attention to is the is trust trust in the media at the moment that Edelman do the annual trust barometer and lots of headlines or comment pieces probably actually get written about it um trust in in traditional media is up this year Trust in media generally is down. Trust in government is, remains in, a, in the doldrums. Um, is it fair that people don't trust the media, trust their politicians, trust their government? Well, it's almost not a question of whether or not it's fair. If that is the... Uh, although, having said that, I think, on the whole, the British political system is full of people who largely don't spend their time lying. Um, they spend their time trying to communicate as effectively as they can, not effective, as effectively as they should quite often, but as effectively as they can about the complexities of the issues that they are dealing with. And you won't very, you know, I don't think you find very many politicians telling out and out lies. Spin still exists, and that's a fact of political life. And in fact, it's the nature of politics that you would want to put the best possible uh, light on, on the things that you are doing. But that is a bit different from a complete sort of fake news situation. And what surprises me about Trump's tweets is that he seems to have escaped the... <laughs> To put it frankly, he seems to have escaped the requirement to tell the truth or deal in facts. You know, he gets away with saying things that, frankly, if a British politician had said it, they would be fired or they would have to resign because they're saying things that are patently untrue. I wonder if that's true, actually. I do, I do think there are things which come, but sail very close to the wind of patently untrue. Uh, that somehow get away with going unpunished these days. Yeah. Um, but I Am guess... I just being falsely naive about the British political No, system? I don't think so. I think, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer, I said, big believer in the power of government for good and that, that politicians, by and large, really trying their best. And it's totally, totally legitimate to arrive at different conclusions about how to improve people's lives. And that, I think that's something that we've, we've forgotten. But mm. something that I'm sort of trying to scope out in this series of podcasts is 
is on the question of emerging technology, what should our expectations of government really be? Mm. You know, government very rarely does government effectively shape a market and grow a market, mm. and, and it's too late in mm. this case. Mm. But there's a huge amount of potential for us to do good with this technology. Mm. And it feels like without some corralling force to herd the cats and, and you know, perhaps maybe in some cases dish out some discipline to errant cats, as you talked about earlier on. Yeah. What is the role of government in all of this? The, yeah. the horse has bolted in terms of growing the market, but in terms of shaping the future of embracing technology. Yeah, I mean, I think you you sort of address two problems of, of, of government and the political life. The first is that in order to be able to grow the market or even to grow the next uh, iteration, you need to take a longer term view than most politicians are in a position to take. And, you know, the civil service tends to be set up as well to support the short term um, objectives and aspirations of politicians. And that doesn't allow the type of long term investment, um, you know, strategic thinking that will enable government to have the policies that would support technology development one. Um, and then I think there is this ongoing problem about the lack of knowledge. But I mean, I think where government, and this is where there is a tension growing between some of the developing new technology, particularly in communication and government, is government does have a role to regulate. And uh, it is not yet clear how it should go about regulating a global phenomenon, of course, um, as well on a sort of country by country basis. That's that's a massive difficulty uh, in thinking that through but there is a role for regulation and that you know I think that is still in development and needs some really hard thinking about we, we I'm going to ask my last question before I start asking about the state's ability to control global situations in a time when everybody wants nationalism <laughs> uh, and my last question is always the same and um, I think you know as the first female home secretary you've got a, a, a unique perspective on this and, and that is to ask people who have achieved positive change and pushed boundaries forward in society what characteristics have you seen them display optimism uh, enthusiasm for the idea that there can be change a lot of hard bloody work uh understanding that, that whilst you need to lead the sort of leadership that's going to achieve change is not going to be a sort of heroic individual leadership jackie smith thank you very much for taking the leap of faith and joining me here in king's cross much appreciated thank you Okay, so that's all from Government versus the Robots this week. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe uh, and tell your friends all about it. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking about cybersecurity, political advertising and much more. So keep your eyes and ears peeled. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. 
code PROGRAM.